You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we start a new series, this one on John McDougal Stewart. Now, most of you are probably saying things such as, who, or what did he do, or never heard of him. And I'll respond by saying it's a huge shame that people don't know more about John McDougal Stewart, because he is probably the greatest explorer of the Australian interior in history. Stewart led six expeditions into the Australian interior in the late 1850s and early 1860s, and was a direct competitor of the famed Burke and Wills expedition in a race to become the first people to ever cross the continent. So what made Stuart such a great explorer? Well, he not only got across the continent, he came back. In all of this, he proved to be a clever and resilient man who survived despite terrible conditions, such as scurvy, extreme heat, and a hundred other challenges. And in the process, he never lost a man under his command. Some more fun stuff about John McDougal Stewart, or simply McDougal Stewart as he was called, was that the guy was a short, slight man with a history of health issues, yet no one could equal the guy for stamina and determination. Do we need more? Well, sure. Stewart was also a social misfit, more at home in the wild than amongst other human beings. He had this big, dark, bushy beard, unkempt hair, and wore rough frontier clothing. He looked like a crazed prospector or preacher, such as John Brown. And let's not forget about his drinking. He was a notorious binge drinker, often drunk more than not when amongst others. Yet out in the bush, he banned alcohol. He was also well-respected, those who worked with him displaying a fierce loyalty to the man they trusted to keep them alive. McDougal Stewart is, without question, a character, as my mother would say. I find him wonderfully fascinating and very, very human. Anyhow, let's get this series started with a few notes. Note number one. Go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, to see a map of Stuart's travels. I also posted a photo of Stuart, which I encourage you to take a look at, just so you can understand the vibe that the man exudes. This series, by the way, takes place in South Australia, which is the southern and central province of modern Australia. Note number two. This is Australia, which means all sorts of odd words and pronunciations. I will try and do my best, but I'm sure my Midwest American accent will mangle something. My pronunciation of Menindi in the Burke and Wills episodes, instead of Menindi, brought me torrents of comments, most of them good-natured. Anyhow, forgive me if something gets butchered, but know that I will try my best. Note number three. I've mentioned the Burke and Wills expedition, and I would be remiss if I didn't encourage you to listen to the series if you have not. It's a long one, but one of my favorites. It is a great companion piece to this series, and I highly recommend you check it out. Alrighty, that is it for notes. Let's get rolling. The Life of Explorer John McDougall Stewart. 
John McDougall Stewart was born in Scotland, just north of Edinburgh, on September 7, 1815. He was the youngest of nine children. His parents were William Stewart and Mary McDougall. William Stewart was an army captain who became a customs officer upon retiring. The young John McDougall Stewart led an uneventful life until both of his parents died in quick succession when he was about 12 or 13 years old. How they died, I could not find out, but Stewart was left to live with relatives and then on to boarding school in Edinburgh. From the time of the death of his parents, Stewart became a solitary figure. Author Sarah Murgatroyd, in her book about the Burke and Wills expedition, The Dig Tree, said this of Stewart, quote, From the moment on, meaning the death of his parents, John McDougall Stewart struck a lonely figure, always an outsider who never managed to reestablish a home of his own, end quote. As a teen, Stewart suffered from a variety of illnesses, including, some suggest, tuberculosis. No matter, he was viewed as a small, sickly youngster. Stewart attended the Scottish Naval and Military Academy, which catered to men looking to enter the military. However, his health and slight stature, he was about 5 foot 6 or 168 centimeters, and weighed no more than 130 pounds or 60 kilograms, made him an unattractive option for military service. Instead, Stewart graduated as a civil engineer. Then, in 1838, he made plans to go to Australia. The continent had initially been settled by convicts, but now people saw an opportunity to obtain good land, something not easily available in Great Britain at this time. A surveyor, such as McDougall Stewart, would have no problem finding work in such an environment. Now, prior to leaving, Stewart became engaged to a young woman, the cousin of a friend. Stewart reportedly went to ask the woman to join him in Australia, only to find her kissing someone else. He thus departed without saying a word. It turns out that the man kissing his fiancée was her cousin, Stuart's friend, who was just saying goodbye. It was an innocent mistake, but the incident and then the subsequent separation of Stuart and the young woman caused the engagement to be called off. It's not known exactly how the broken romance affected Stuart, but he would never again, at least that we know of, become entangled in the affairs of the heart. The voyage to Australia was a long four months. Stewart's health was not aided by the ocean voyage as he suffered from constant stomach problems, including coughing up blood. Based on his symptoms, he likely suffered from an ulcer, something that would flare up all of his life. One of the passengers on the trip south took note of the awkward Scotsman, saying he was a great reader as well as silent and stubborn. Despite the latter comments, people found him agreeable and he was well liked by others. Stewart's destination in Australia is the fledgling colony of South Australia, which, as I explained earlier, is in the middle and central part of the continent. Stewart arrived in Adelaide, the colony's capital, in January of 1838. Adelaide was, at the time of Stewart's arrival, barely two years old. 636 colonists from Europe in seven ships, called the First Fleet of South Australia, had founded the city, the colony's first, in December of 1836. The attraction was land. Many of these early colonists were poor and had little chance of owning their own property back in England or Ireland. And so, when McDougall Stewart arrived in Adelaide, much of the settlement was made up of tents or simple huts with dirt floors. But the population was expanding along the coast and inland, people always looking for new lands to plant crops or set up a ranch. In this situation, the need to survey the land was critical. By surveying it, you can determine and delineate the exact position of an area by taking linear and angular measurements and by applying the principles of geometry and trigonometry. Only then can you properly lay out and assign or sell plots to the new settlers. Well, this made McDougall Stewart a valued asset, and he quickly found work with the colony surveyor general, marking out newly settled districts. Stewart's job took him away from civilization. He spent long hours in the field, six days a week, living in a tent. 
The job paid him two shillings and ten pence a day. The young Scotsman thrived at his new job. He was best when he was in the bush, away from people and society, where he found himself feeling uncomfortable and awkward. Thus, he did not make many friends or form many attachments. He was said to prefer the company of kids and animals, enjoying their simple and unambiguous friendship. Even basic creature comforts of the city eluded Stuart. When in the city, he was known to turn down a bed for the night and instead camp out in a garden. Author Sarah Murgatroyd said this about Stuart in her book, The Dig Tree. Quote, like so many explorers, he was a social misfit, craving escape from the conventions of society and never comfortable with emotional commitment. End quote. Another thing about Stewart is that, at some point in his life, he took to drinking. He never did it out in the field, but given some downtime, he would get drunk for days and days. Now, I do want to introduce someone to our story, as he is very important to our tale, and that is the Surveyor General of South Australia, Stewart's boss. The man's name was Charles Sturt. Now, I want to be clear here, that's Sturt, S-T-U-R-T, not to be confused with our explorer, Stuart. Anyhow, Charles Sturt was, by this time, a famous explorer. In the late 1820s, he had led two expeditions into the interior of the Australian outback, reaching the Darling River and traveling the full length of the Murrumbidgee, plus tracing the Murray River to the sea. This was critical to open up the interior of southeastern Australia to farming, ranching, mining, and colonization. Sturt believed that there must be a great inland sea in the center of Australia, and he was not alone in this belief. The reason is that many of the rivers found in the east of Australia flow from the west, so the theory was that there must be a great inland sea feeding these rivers. We will get back to Sturt in a moment, but now let's return to McDougall Stewart. The man went to work as a private surveyor in 1842 and even tried farming for a year, but the latter was not for him. Stewart was a restless type, and he worked best on the move. And then, in 1844, the aforementioned Charles Sturt announced he was conducting a new expedition, this to find the great inland sea he believed existed. He offered McDougall Stewart a job as a draftsman, which meant he was responsible for things such as making maps, calculations, and drawings. In August of 1844, the expedition set out from Adelaide with 15 men, 200 sheep, 6 wagons, and a boat. And thus, John McDougall Stewart was part of his first ever expedition of discovery. The team headed northeast up the Darling River, toward what is now present-day Menindi, and then turned north. By the way, all of what's to come is familiar ground if you have listened to the Burke and Wills Expedition podcast. Anyhow, the march north was a difficult one. Driving a herd of sheep and hauling wagons was a slog. One thing McDougall Stewart began to understand was the extreme seasonal conditions the Australian outback offered. Waterholes, creeks, and even rivers simply disappeared in the summer months and the heat was debilitating on the men and animals. In fact, a hundred or so miles north of Menindi, the expedition was forced to halt for six months at a place now called Milparinka due to the extreme conditions. They were, essentially, trapped in expanse of white salt landscapes before them, massive sandy dunes to the rear. Regarding McDougall Stewart, despite his slight and at times sickly appearance, he proved to be a man of immense stamina and fortitude. He also displayed outstanding judgment and good instincts for survival. An example was at one point in the journey, when the team was desperate for water, he spotted and tracked some pigeons, which took the expedition to a waterhole. Eventually, the rains came to the region, and the expedition pushed north. Sturt would eventually break up his team, setting up a depot not far from Milparinka. He then continued north with a smaller group, including McDougall Stewart. Sturt, by the way, insisted on bringing along the boat, convinced a great sea was waiting for them. But Charles Sturt's dream of finding an inland sea was, as we know, impossible to achieve because no such place existed. 
Instead, he would be greeted by two of Australia's most imposing physical regions, the Simpson Desert and Sturt Stony Desert. The latter is particularly striking. It's hundreds of square miles of desert covered in gibber, which is closely packed interlocking rock fragments. The jagged and often razor-sharp pebbles and rocks quickly tore away at the boots of the men. The expedition's dog lost all of its skin from its paws. Now, the small group of men did find something very important. After Sturt's stony desert, out of nowhere a chain of waterholes, surrounded by kulibut trees, was discovered in November of 1845. This was named Cooper's Creek and plays a huge part in the Burke and Wills expedition. Sturt tried to push onward from Cooper's Creek, but it was fruitless. Summer was coming to Australia, and the desert before them had become a waterless wasteland. On November 11th, Sturt called an end to the advance. It was time to head home. It was here that he finally abandoned the small wooden boat that he had hoped to sail on the inland sea. The return journey was a brutal one, and scurvy was now getting a grip on the expedition. Everyone suffered from it. The expedition's chief surveyor, James Poole, would die from the disease, McDowell Stewart taking over as the lead surveyor. Charles Sturt basically broke down on the return journey, and he had to be carried much of the way back to Adelaide. In fact, Sturt never fully recovered his health. He eventually returned to England due to long-term health issues. One of those health issues Sturt suffered from was deteriorating eyesight, and it's something I want to mention because it will, in time, plague McDowell Stewart as well. The problem was spending so much time in the blazing sun in the Australian desert, and this was especially horrible for a surveyor. To take sightings in the day and in the desert is brutal on the eyes. It's no different than a sailor being on the ocean. Christopher Columbus suffered from terrible eye pain due to decades out on the bright ocean, and he could barely go out on deck in the daytime on his final voyage. Anyhow, Sturt's expedition had returned, the inland sea they had expected to find nowhere to be seen. But he had mapped a lot of territory and identified important locations, such as Cooper's Creek. The team had traveled more than 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers. Also, he had confirmed how difficult and deadly exploration into the Australian outback was going to be. As for John McDowell Stewart, he received praise from everyone for the work he had done. He was tireless, cheerful, and full of spirit and zeal. Most of the maps and charts put together by the expedition were drawn by Stewart. And most importantly, McDowell Stewart now had experience that few men could boast. This was critical for what was to come. Coupled with his sound judgment, it will make him a formidable frontiersman and explorer. But I want to note that the two years in the wild had taken its toll on Stewart. He had suffered badly from scurvy, and his ulcer was debilitating. He could not work or travel for a year. Once McDowell Stewart recovered his health, he became a sought-after surveyor. He worked in remote areas and for long periods. He developed a reputation for finding good pastures in rough country. It was a great talent to have in this time and place. To be honest, McDowell Stewart had found his niche in life. He was good at what he did, and people trusted him. Now, I want to talk about a couple of things going on in Australia at this time, as they are relevant to our story. First, in May of 1851, the Australian Gold Rush began. This was focused primarily to the east of South Australia, but there were some smaller goldfields found in the colony starting in 1852. But more than anything, gold brought people to Australia. The population of non-native peoples doubled within a decade of the discovery of gold and these new arrivals had to, eventually, start doing something other than searching for gold. And that brings me to my second point, and that is ranching. Ranching was fast becoming a big and very valuable industry. Europeans saw these vast, open, and empty prairies, perfect for cattle and sheep. Of course, these lands were far from empty. 
the native aboriginal people lived in these lands, often moving from place to place depending on the availability of food and water. Anyhow, all of this led to the rise of wealthy ranchers, or pastoralists, as they were called. These men acquired the rights to huge swaths of grazing land. This was mostly for sheep, which meant wool. Wool was quickly becoming one of Australia's biggest and most lucrative industries. As early as 1807, wool was being exported, and by 1870, Australia was the biggest producer of wool in the world. Most of it was sent to a rapidly industrializing Great Britain. By the way, the reason Australia is so big on wool production is that the land and climate is perfect for sheep. Ideally, you have lots of dry, arable land. Sheep thrive in such conditions. Well, Australia had all of that, and then some. Anyhow, in addition to wool, the other thing people were interested in were minerals. This meant mining. Many of these same men who became rich through the wool industry were also interested in mineral rights to these interior lands. And it wasn't just gold, but there was copper and other minerals to be discovered in the bush. It was for these types of men, and they were pretty much all men, that Stewart ventured off to places such as Port Lincoln and Flinders Ranges. He was there to survey lands that could be used for grazing sheep, plus poke around for minerals. A few of these prominent prospectors slash pastoralists were William Fink, plus two brothers, James and John Chambers. In doing this, Stewart honed his skills as a bushman. He usually operated with small groups, focusing on moving quickly and efficiently. Despite his own drinking habits, he banned alcohol while he worked, knowing how destructive it was. He would go for weeks, even months at a time, without drinking. Of course, once he got back to civilization, all bets were off, and Stewart would go on a bender. And that brings us to 1858. McDowell Stewart was 43 years old, a surveyor who had the respect and friendship of some of the colony's most wealthy people. Stewart was, without question, a quirky guy. As I have said, he was never really comfortable in normal society, preferring to be out in the wilderness. And he would have cut quite the odd figure. He was slight and short, his big beard streaked with gray, and his messy hair starting to recede. And he was entirely unfashionable. He wore heavy, cotton moleskin trousers and a long-tailed blue coat. He frequently sported a cabbage tree hat, which is a hat made of the leaves from the cabbage tree palm. And we can't forget about the drinking. If there was nothing for Stewart to do, the bottle was waiting for him. And that is when William Fink, one of the pastoralists I mentioned earlier, talked to Stewart about an expedition into the Australian interior. The goal was to find minerals in a land the Aboriginal people of Kukuda country called Winglepin and new grazing land in the northwest of South Australia. And that, my friends, will be the first of six expeditions led by Stewart, aiming at exploring the interior of Australia and ultimately crossing it eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In June of 1858, McDougall Stewart set off on his first expedition into the interior of Australia. People expected an expedition to have dozens of pack animals, hundreds of bearers, wagons, boats, scientists, hunters, guides, and translators. Instead, when Stewart set off, it was him, a man named Forster, we don't know his first name, and the young Aboriginal man, whose name we don't know at all. Stewart had six horses, six weeks of rations, some reports say only four weeks, a pocket compass, and a watch. His team was armed as well. That's it. Forster was an experienced frontiersman. The Aboriginal man, Stuart hoped, would know the land and be able to translate with the tribes, also known as mobs, that they encountered. McDougall Stuart had learned a lot about exploring the past dozen years, and he understood that the size of an expedition was not the most important thing. The Australian outback was capricious by nature, changing suddenly and with dramatic effect. Plotting expeditions fared poorly in such an environment. Stewart elected to go small and mobile, relying on nimbleness and toughness to meet adversity when it, invariably, reared its head. Now, before we send Stewart into the outback, I want to talk a little about the geography of South Australia, and I want to remind you that there's a map of all of this on our website. It's not a bad idea to look at things. So if you look at a map of South Central Australia, you'll find the capital of Adelaide in the far south along the coast. There's a big bay just to the west of Adelaide called Spencer Gulf. At the northern end of the gulf is the city of Port Augusta. If you go straight from there, you run into a big lake. This is Lake Torrens, and it runs about 100 miles north to south, or 160 kilometers. It is a salt lake, like many of the lakes in the region. From the northern tip of Lake Torrens, you can go another 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, and you'll find another big body of water, Lake Eyre, as well as a bunch of smaller lakes. These lakes are pretty easy to see if you glance at a map. Both had been visited by Europeans around 1840. Stewart's plan was to travel up the western side of Lake Torrens and at the top of the lake head northwest and into the unknown. I've seen some people trace Stewart's route along the eastern side of Lake Torrens, but that is not the case. Either way, it is not a huge deal. Stewart gathered his expedition at a place called Oratanga Station. It was actually a mine operated by John Chambers, one of the wealthy ranchers in the colony. It is located east of Lake Torrens along the western side of the mountain range called Flinders Ranges. It was, at this time, one of the most remote and northerly settlements in South Australia. Both Forster and the young Aboriginal man were employees of Chambers. Stewart and his companions moved closer to the southern tip of Lake Torrens and waited for the rains to arrive and waterholes to fill up. One critical thing to remember is that their water sources were not always permanent. Stewart had learned this over the past 15 years in the outback. Stewart finally departed on his journey on June 10, 1858, from a place called Utena, not far from the southern tip of Lake Torrens. The men rounded the bottom of the lake and proceeded north. The biggest issue at this point was finding drinkable water. Many of the water holes they visited were still dry, or they were filled with salt water, which the horses refused to drink. One of the difficulties with using horses on expeditions into desert-like areas is the need for water. A horse can go weeks without eating, but only a few days without water, and they need lots of water. Stewart's journals are littered with the words, No water. Another issue surrounding the horses was shoes. In the rough terrain, the horses' shoes wore down and broke. 
By the end of June, most of the expedition's horses had no shoes. Anyhow, steadily the expedition moved north. It was common to do 20 or 30 miles in a day, especially if water was available. In rougher terrain, the team would go as low as 10 miles. One thing I want to stress is that the progress north was not in a straight line. The company was weaving their way through great sand dunes and rocky hills, and they had to follow the water, which often meant going out of their way. It made for slow going. Also, to accommodate the horses, Stuart had to rest on some days. The rough terrain, lack of water, and heavy loads was making the horses lame. When Stuart encountered the Aboriginal people, he inquired about water. At the same time, he was told of a fresh water lake called Winglepin. There you could find an oasis complete with trees and kangaroos. This greatly interested Stuart. Which direction was this fabulous oasis? Inland, said the natives, five sleeps away. Stuart wondered if this was referring to Cooper's Creek, which was 250 miles to the northeast. The Aboriginal people, by the way, generally shied away from Stuart and his people. Many had never seen a white man or a horse. Stuart could only continue moving into unexplored country, and like so much of the area, the landscape was harsh. Of it, Stuart wrote in his journal on June 28th, quote, Bleak, barren, and desolate. It grows no timber, so that we can scarcely find sufficient wood to boil our quart pot. End quote. And then, about 20 miles north of Lake Torrens, Stuart came upon an isolated chain of semi-permanent waterholes, which he dubbed Chambers Creek. This is now called Stuart Creek, in case you look it up on a map. This was an important discovery for Stuart, as the location will be critical as a staging post for future expeditions into the interior of the continent. From Chambers Creek, the expedition continued northwest. It was here that the rains came, transforming the landscape. What had been drought-ravaged soil filled with water, and soon there was life. And the rains kept coming, so much that Stuart and his men had to retreat to higher ground when they found themselves belly-deep in water. And at one point, the horses were struggling through knee-deep mud. All of it, Stuart felt, would make the area a good sheep-grazing country. From Chambers Creek, the expedition continued northwest, going about 150 miles, or 235 kilometers, and crossing a small mountain range, before descending onto a bleached stony plain. Stuart had reached what today we call Cooper Pedy, a bit about Cooper Pedy. At a glance, no one would want to stay at this location for any length of time. However, in 1915, opals were discovered, and Cooper Pedy was transformed into the opal capital of the world. The place is so desolate, the people that live and work there live underground during the summer months. People literally built homes, called dugouts, into the area's caves, carving out different rooms. These underground homes keep constant temperature most of the year, and thus don't need air conditioning, like the surface dwellings. Today, the location is a tourist spot, and in addition to the mines, you have underground churches, shops, hotels, and even a cemetery. Cooper Pedy has a unique, almost alien feel to it. It has been featured in a bunch of movies and television shows. This includes Mad Max, Pitch Black, Mortal Kombat, and The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Stewart found the bleak white landscape, coupled with the intense sun, caused mirages, making it difficult to travel as one couldn't ascertain what was before them. At this point, Stewart and his companions had been gone about two months. Their supplies were running low, and the horses were lame due to the cracked stones of the surrounding desert. To the north and west, Stuart saw nothing but bleak-looking desert. He decided it was time to head home. However, instead of returning the way they had come, he elected to go directly south. The lands they had come from were simply too desolate, and there was little hope for game. Remember, Stuart had only brought six weeks of provisions. It had been two months, so almost everything was gone. And the wilderness had not provided much in the way of game. Up to this point, the expedition's hunting list was slim. Four wallabies, one possum, two ducks 
one pigeon, and a few kangaroo mice, which he said were, quote, very welcome, we were anxious to find more, end quote. On July 16, 1858, Stuart headed southward. They had 310 miles, or 500 kilometers, ahead of them. They soon reached some grasslands, but food was running low, the men now eating only one meal a day. The last of the flour was used on July 30th. So the food was nearly gone. Water was hard to find. At one point, the horses went three days without water. The country was rough and unforgiving. Also, the horses were wearing down. One gray mare, who was a favorite of Stuart's, was flagging badly. She had been nearly worthless as a pack animal for weeks, but Stuart kept coaxing her along. He was afraid he would have to abandon her. Things got so bleak at the end of July, Stuart wrote, quote, There is no hope of anything here. End quote. And then, on August 2nd, it rained. It brought the men hope. Soon they were in good country, with emus and kangaroos, and signs of the local aboriginal people. However, the next day, the young aboriginal man who had been with Stuart took off in the night. He had apparently been worried about the local tribes, and thought it better to turn around. No matter, it is the last we will ever hear of the young man. Something else to note, by this time, Stuart was likely displaying signs of scurvy. He had been in the wild for eight weeks, and he had barely eaten fresh food or meat. Another difficult moment for Stuart came on August 5th, when his favorite gray mare would not continue. In his journal, he lamented having to abandon her. He left her at a spot with water and plenty of feed, writing that he hoped to return for her in the future. Stuart is odd in that he displays obvious affection for his pack animals. He shows more concern for the gray mare than he does for himself, and he could easily have shot the mare and provided a lot of food for himself and forced her, but he did not. On August 11th, the men came to another barren obstacle, the Nullarbor Plains, essentially a desert. It is a flat, almost treeless expanse. Heading across the plains, Stuart wrote, quote, When will it end? End quote. I love that line, simple, to the point, desperate in tone. Crossing the desert would take five days, no water to be had during that time. The horses were doing badly, although they did find some greenery, allowing them to eat. On August 13th, Stuart wrote, quote, this is dreadful work, end quote. However, on August 15th, the two men saw signs of hope, horse tracks. Stuart knew they were getting close to the southern coast of Australia. The next day, the men and horses finally found some water, and the day after that, they reached a place called Miller's Water, which is near present-day Seduna on the southern coast. While Stuart now had water, he was nearly out of food, and the nearest frontier station was still a hundred-mile journey down the coast to a place called Streaky Bay and there was no promise there would be anyone at the outpost. Stuart could only press on. On August 17th, they ate the last of their food. They had nothing for three days until Crow was shot and eaten. And then, late in the day on August 23rd, Stuart, Forster, and the horses staggered into the depot, called Mr. Gibson's Station, at Streaky Bay. The station was, thankfully, manned, and the two explorers were given some much-needed food. Once they reached Streaky Bay, both Stuart and Forster essentially collapsed due to malnutrition, the sudden change in diet, the effects of scurvy, and exhaustion. They waited until September 1st until setting out again. Stuart did regret not being able to go back and find the gray mare he had left weeks earlier. Now Stuart had one final leg, a 200-mile or 320-kilometer journey towards the area around Port Augusta. But these were traveled lands with water, and Stuart and Forster had refreshed their food supply. Thus, the journey went without incident. The men and horses arrived at Mr. Thompson's station at Mount Arden, not far from Port Augusta, on September 11, 1858. John McDowell Stewart's first expedition was complete. So what had the man accomplished? Well, first his team had covered more than 1,500 miles, or 2,400 kilometers, 
opening up thousands of square miles of potential sheep country. The area around Chambers Creek was of particular interest. Second, Stewart had identified key water sources for future expeditions going inland, most especially the Chambers Creek area. Third, he had penetrated further inland than any European. There was no inland sea, but plenty of arable land. It gave everyone a glimpse of what lay in the Australian interior. And the amazing thing was that Stewart had prepared for a six-week expedition, but had been gone for four months. To survive such a situation was incredible, especially considering the difficult Australian landscape. When Stewart returned, he handed over his maps and journals to government officials. People heaped praise on him for what he had done. The Royal Geographical Society gave him a gold watch, and the South Australian government gave him a lease on a thousand acres of land in the Chambers Creek area. Stewart was now one of the continent's preeminent explorers and a hero to those in South Australia. The other thing I want to note is that the expedition gave Stewart an insight into the Australian interior that few could match. Author Sarah Murray said, quote, He, meaning Stewart, had come to terms with the capriciousness of the Australian desert. End quote. By this, she was saying that he understood the delicate balances of the land's climate and geography. The Australian interior is renowned for its irregular climate patterns. This is on a micro and macro level. Weather conditions can evolve over months, even years, and the extreme nature of the weather can be stunning. The interior of Australia is one of the driest places on the planet, yet it can experience 7 inches of water, or 180 millimeters, in a single day. Riverbeds can be dry for years, then overflowing in a matter of hours. 70 mile an hour winds, or 110 kilometers per hour, could sweep across a desert. Temperatures can swing from below freezing to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or 45 degrees Celsius, in 24 hours. This understanding and acceptance of Australia's crazy climate was one of the most important things Stuart came to grasp. I also want to point out that his approach to exploration, a small mobile team, avoiding conflict with the native people, had proved to be an outstanding decision. Anyhow, this is where we will leave things for today. Next time, we will begin with Stuart's second expedition, but to be honest, it's not a major endeavor. But after that, well, things will change when exploration fever sweeps across Australia and politicians embrace the idea of running a telegraph line across the continent. All this will come to a fever pitch when the South Australian government offers a prize of £2,000 to the man who blazes a trail to the north coast. That will eventually lead to a race between McDougal Stewart and Robert O'Hara Burke. It is a great story, so please join us for the next episode. Otherwise, thank you for being with me today. I hope you enjoyed this first episode in our series on John McDougal Stewart. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, including The Art of Crime and Historical Blindness. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.